This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I appreciate you so much for tuning in this week. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 177, entitled Sacrifices and the Christian God, Part 2 of 2. In this week's episode, we will continue to explore how early Christians used language of sacrifice and offerings in regard to God and Jesus. Last week, we noted that the common practice in the ancient Near East shared by pagans and monotheists alike, was to reserve burnt offerings and sacrifices for God alone. We also noted that Jesus Christ was never the object of sacrificial language in Paul. The Apostle Paul thought that only God was worthy of sacrifice and offerings. This gave us a working thesis in which the resurrected and exalted Jesus was not understood as being equal to God or taking the place of God when it came to sacrificial practices and theology. In this week's episode, we will dive deeper into early Christian beliefs about sacrifice. We will look at Jesus' role as the high priest within the book of Hebrews, to see if the focus on sacrifice continued to be reserved for God alone. Next, we will look deeper into the theology of Paul surrounding the death of Jesus to see if any sacrificial language appears there. Lastly, we will explore the communal meal of the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, in order to see if this practice can tell us anything about early Christian understandings of sacrifice and to whom they were offered. Do early Christian understandings of sacrifice indicate their continued observance of unitary monotheism? Or has Christ been elevated to equality with God within these practices? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus as the offering to God within the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has a lot of passages that talk about this particular subject, so we're going to be reading quite frequently from this text. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, which says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. That's Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. And we could draw a lot 
of understanding of how this particular author understood Jesus in relationship to offerings and sacrifice. We can see that Jesus is likened to other priests who offered sacrifices, and clearly the other priests were offering their sacrifices to God, so it's likely that Jesus was offering his sacrifice to God. And we can see that Jesus offered up himself, the entirety of him, as a sacrifice. The language of offering indicates the offering of a sacrifice. And of course, the language of himself, in that Jesus offered himself, indicates Jesus in his wholeness. So someone couldn't argue that only Jesus' body died, or that a supposed two-natured Jesus only died in his humanity and not in his divinity. The author of the book of Hebrews is clear that all of Jesus, Jesus in his entirety, Jesus himself, was offered up as a sacrifice to God. Let's continue looking in Hebrews now in chapter 9, starting in verse 26. Now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. It's Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. So again, we have sacrificial language that is being used. We can see that the sacrifice was of Jesus himself, using that pronoun. So Jesus completely died. And we can see that Jesus was offered. And it's clear that this offering was made to God. Moving along, we'll move to Hebrews chapter 10, and let's start in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. So we can again see that Jesus is depicted like other priests who offered sacrifices. But Jesus offered one particular sacrifice, and the sacrifice was himself. Jesus offered himself, and it's pretty clear that Jesus is distinguished from God, because after Jesus offered himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, we can see the sense in which Jesus was offered. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. So we can see that it is the body of Jesus that was offered. And if this is being offered within sacrificial terms and sacrificial understanding, then we could see that it was the body of Jesus that was offered up as this sacrifice of sorts. 
Now, that doesn't mean that it was just the body in the sense of a body-soul dualism or a dualed nature Jesus dualism, because you've already seen that Jesus offered up himself. He offered up himself in his entirety. We're also going to note that it was the blood of Jesus that was offered. That's also a continued emphasis within the book of Hebrews, like in this passage, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, which says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. That's Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. So it is through his own blood. We've seen the emphasis on Jesus' body. We've seen the emphasis on Jesus offering himself. And now here we're seeing that it is his own blood. We have to remember that the offering of blood was a major component within the Jewish sacrifices. It was the blood of an animal that had to be spilt in order for the sacrifice to be understood as legitimate. Moving along a few verses later in chapter 9, verse 14, we can see the passage saying, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. We get quite a lot out of this particular verse. We can see that Christ's blood was offered. His blood is understood in sacrificial terms. And yet it is still an offering of himself. Jesus offered himself. So there's not a difference between the offering of the blood of Jesus and Jesus offering the entirety of himself. And we could see in this passage that the offering of Jesus was to God. God is the object of this sacrifice. Jesus is distinguished from God. Let's move along. Chapter 10 and verse 19 of the book of Hebrews says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. There in chapter 10, verse 19, we continue to see the insistence on the sacrificial blood of this offering that makes Jesus' death legitimate. His blood is understood as sacrificial terminology. Much of the same can be seen in chapter 10, verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? That's chapter 10, verse 29. The passage says that he was sacrificed he being Jesus, and we can see that his blood, the blood of Jesus' sacrifice, is regarded as the blood of the covenant, because covenants had to be sealed with the sacrifice of an animal. There had to be a sacrifice that was sealed in blood in order for these covenants, these agreements, to be ratified. Much the same can be seen in chapter 13, verse 20, where it says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord. That's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. So Jesus our Lord, whose blood was sacrificed, 
is in this passage distinguished from God. That much is pretty clear. And the God of peace is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And this indicates that Jesus sacrificed his own blood as an offering to God, namely the God who raised Jesus. There's really no confusion of where Jesus fits within the sacrificial metaphor and where God fits within this among the theology of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is a sacrifice and the sacrifice is made to God and the two are never confused. In fact, we can see this with mediation language. The book of Hebrews highlights Jesus as the mediator. Now the word mediator comes from the Greek noun mesitis, which the BDAG lexicon defines as one who mediates between two parties to remove a disagreement or reach a common goal. A mediator, a arbitrator. And so a mediator is someone who mediates between two parties. And so if Jesus is the mediator, then he mediates between God, the one to whom sacrifices are made, and the people, the ones for whom the sacrifices are made. And so Jesus is called a mediator within the book of Hebrews quite frequently, like here in chapter 8, verse 6, which says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus is the mediator, the mediator functioning between these two parties, and of course, the two parties are God and the people. Much the same in chapter 9, verse 15, where it says, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Chapter 9, verse 15. And again in chapter 12, verse 24, which says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So if Jesus is the mediator, then he is the middleman, pun intended, between God, the one to whom the sacrifices and offerings are made, and the people, the ones for whom sacrifices and offerings are made. Let's move on to our second point, point number two, which is Pauline theology of Jesus as an offering to God. We noted last week that Paul had much to say about offerings and sacrifices that were spiritualized within Christian practices, but I want to focus on what Paul has to say about the death of Jesus and observe if there are any sacrificial overtones within the way that Paul describes Jesus' death. So let's look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 24, where Paul says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. There's a lot there, but we can see the language of propitiation, which is a big, fancy church word, which refers to the sacrificial means through which one finds goodwill with a God. 
and this propitiation indicates that Paul is viewing Jesus as a sacrifice to God. And the sacrifice occurred through Jesus' blood, the blood sacrifice of Jesus. We can see a little bit more of this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, which is a very important passage in understanding Paul's theology of Jesus in terms of sacrifice. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. That's Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. And it's this final phrase in the verse that God sent Jesus as an offering for sin that we need to discuss. Now, in your translation of the New Testament, the word offering within the phrase offering for sin might be in italics, but the word offering is implied because the Greek phrase that Paul uses here is peri amartias, which is the genitive of this particular phrase, and it is the frequent phrase within the Septuagint in regard to sin offerings. And this particular phrase is found in the Septuagint in over 50 occurrences within Leviticus and Numbers alone to refer to sacrificial sin offerings involving Israelite feast and Israelite holy days. So Paul draws upon this particular language and says that God has commissioned his own son as an offering for sin. So Paul thinks that Jesus is an offering, a sacrificial offering, drawing upon the language of the Israelite holy days and their feast. So in other words, Jesus was an offering for sin, and this has very clear sacrificial terminology. Of course, the offering is to God. Jesus is offered, and it's offered to God on behalf of the people. Now we can see Paul's theology come through in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, which says, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. Clearly here we can see the passage saying that Jesus is an offering and a sacrifice, and we can see to whom this offering and sacrifice was made. Clearly, it was a sacrifice to God. There's no confusion there. Jesus is the offering, and it was made to God. Now, there's a longer passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in which Paul is describing the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. And Paul is contrasting this with a particular practice that Paul disagrees with. Paul disagrees that it is okay for Christians in Corinth to go to these pagan temples and to eat this meat that is sacrificed to idols, even though 
these Christians are thinking that these idols aren't real, the gods aren't real, and so there's no real harm, no foul in eating this meat sacrificed to idols because there's no real God that's there. Paul has to make a discussion about this and the real power with the sharing and the communion that is actually taking place within these meals. And Paul is going to talk about three different meals. He's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about these meals where the Christians are going to the pagan temples and eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And he's going to talk about the meals of the Israelites when they ate their sacrificial meals of the Feast of the Israelite Holy Days. So we have to keep those three things in mind. Let's try to follow along. Passage is a little bit difficult. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will start in verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread, which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's 1 Corinthians 10 verses 16 through 21. And Paul actually tells us a good bit here about the understanding of the Lord's Supper. And we can start to see that there are some sacrificial overtones that are understood with this particular meal. So we talked about the three meals that Paul contrasts. We had the sacrificial feast of the ancient Israelites, the meals that are sacrificed to idols within pagan temples, and the Lord's Supper. Now, since the Israelite feast and the pagan meals are both sacrifices, then it is very likely that Paul is understanding the Lord's Supper also as a sacrifice, at least a sacrifice of sorts. There's a sacrifice and a sharing, a communion, a fellowship that is taking place. Now Paul mentions specifically here the bread and the cup. And we know from 1 Corinthians 11 that these two symbolized the body and the blood of Jesus. But the meal of the Lord's Supper did not only consist of bread and wine. These two were part of a much wider meal which was developed from the Jewish Feast of Passover. And of course, the Jewish Feast of Passover certainly involved sacrifices. Now, it would seem here that the Lord's Supper was initially practiced as a meal of sacrifice. 
It wasn't merely a symbolic meal involving simply bread and wine. And if this is the case, then Jesus was understood symbolically as the sacrifice. Jesus was offered to God. Jesus' body was offered to God, and Christians can share and commune with that body by partaking of the bread. Jesus' blood was offered to God as a sacrifice, and Christians can commune with Jesus and his sacrifice by partaking of the blood with the symbolic wine. The participants of the Lord's Supper, of this sacrificial feast of sorts, participate by sharing or communing with Jesus, who is understood as a sacrifice to God. And it's difficult for Christians in the 21st century to think of the Lord's Supper in terms of a sacrifice, because the Lord's Supper is often depicted with these symbolic emblems of a little piece of bread or a little cup of grape juice. And due to COVID happening over the last 18 months, the Lord's Supper has rarely been celebrated in person. So it's even that much more difficult for Christians to really grasp at how Paul and the early Christians were understanding this particular meal. It's very important that it's the death of Jesus, and not just the death of Jesus, but the sacrificial death of Jesus that is being shared and participated in with these early Christians. Let's look a little bit more at this with a few more passages from 1 Corinthians. This will lead us to our third and final point, which is the Lord's Supper as a meal commemorating sacrifice. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 28. And so Paul is able to offer some more evidence that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharistic meal, was a fully-fledged meal, and it involved more than mere bread and wine. 
we can see that early Christians were coming together and they were bringing their own food. We could see that they are commemorating this meal that Jesus took. And Paul says specifically that, that Jesus took the cup also after supper, meaning that the cup was not part of the supper. The supper was a meal, a feast that Jesus had already participated in with his early disciples, and the bread and the cup were taken afterwards. So the bread and the cup do not constitute the entirety of the meal. They are part of the meal, but they are not all of the meal. Of course, the bread represented the body of Jesus that was sacrificed, indicating that eating the bread was participating in a sacrificial feast. Along the same lines, the cup represented the blood of Jesus, which is also a sacrificial element in offerings, particularly in the Passover feast of the Israelites, where blood was painted on the doors. And it seems that the Lord's Supper was a sacrificial feast for the early Christians. They were celebrating, they were commemorating, and they were even participating in Jesus' own sacrifice that was made to God. It's very interesting when we look at these details that Paul offers us, we can see how the early Christians were understanding the significance of this celebratory and ritualistic meal. Let's look at another passage in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks of this meal and as Jesus as the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 through 8, Paul says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 through 8. So here we have further evidence to suggest that Jesus' death was understood along the lines as a sacrificial feast of Passover. It wasn't the same thing as Passover, but it was understood along the same lines. Christ is our Passover. And it says, Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. And of course, if Jesus was sacrificed, the question is, to whom was he sacrificed? And clearly, Christ was sacrificed to God. But the sacrificial language and the Passover language indicates that there was a feast that was being considered with the Eucharistic meal. And Paul tells his readers here to celebrate the sacrificial feast, although within 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the context is an application that is far more practical. He's not specifically talking about the Eucharistic meal, but by regarding Jesus as the Passover that was sacrificed, we can get an understanding of Jesus as a sacrifice, that Jesus is commemorated and celebrated within the Eucharistic meal that is described in chapter 11. 
So the references and the connecting theology that overlaps with the Lord's Supper should not be overlooked, even though 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not directly dealing with the Lord's Supper. So in conclusion, we have observed that early Christians operated within the cultural expectations of the ancient Near East by reserving sacrifices and language associated with burnt offerings as due to God alone. We first noted that the author of Hebrews strongly insists that Jesus himself was an offering to God in his death on the cross. Both the body of Jesus and his blood are used to convey the sacrificial meaning of Jesus' death. Additionally, the author of Hebrews frequently depicts Jesus as the mediator between God and the people, further indicating that Jesus' sacrifice was offered for the people, but to God alone. The book of Hebrews never portrays Jesus as taking over the role of God as the legitimate object of sacrifices and offerings. Second, we observe that the theology of the Apostle Paul conveyed the conviction that Jesus' death was understood as a sacrifice to God. For Paul, Jesus was a sin offering to God, using specific language of sacrifices from the feast of Israel's holy days. Moreover, Paul gives evidence of the practice of the Lord's Supper, which indicates that early Christians understood the ceremonial meal as sacrificial in some sense. We noted that the body and the blood of Jesus, which were both sacrificed, were deeply integrated into the meal's ritual. Furthermore, Paul openly calls Jesus our Passover, which was a prominent feast that was offered to God. The theology of Paul in the arguments of the book of Hebrews further demonstrate that early Christians understood Jesus Christ as a sacrifice and offering to the one true God. And in these various depictions, God and Jesus are never confused. God is never sacrificed, and Jesus is never depicted as taking the place of God to whom sacrifices and offerings were given. So although the risen Jesus was understood in exalted terms by the early church, Jesus did not take the place that was reserved for God alone when it came to sacrificial theology, sacrificial practices, and sacrificial meals. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we explore how the Aramaic Targums shed light on John 1.1 and the Word that was with God in the beginning. Please look forward to it. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of God's oneness and Jesus' humanity. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. 
Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams, and I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.